John chapter 14, we're going to continue our Advent series. This is week number three. Next Sunday, I will bring the Advent series to a close um, at, at some level, but we will kind of bring it to a final close on December 23rd and or December 25th. Today, we're going to look at, as we continue uh, to examine the various names of Jesus, we've looked at Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. To, you know, last week, we looked at Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Today, we're we're going to look at Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. So John chapter 14, just reading one verse, verse 6, Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Let me say that one more time. I am the way. Jesus said very clearly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for chance to be together today in your presence. We thank you for your word. Your word is alive. It's powerful. We thank you that your word still speaks to our lives and to our hearts today. And God, I just ask and pray that in these next few moments together, as we unpack and examine yet again another name of Jesus, that you are the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that you would just open our eyes, our hearts, our ears to hear and to receive your word this morning. And I ask and I pray that this word would transform every heart, every life, every mind in this room today. And Holy Spirit, help me to speak not a single word of my own, but only that which comes from you. Help me to speak your word with boldness, with clarity, with simplicity. And God, help me to decrease and you to increase and be the focus of our time together, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. It's Robert Weber, he told this story. He said, I was traveling on a plane from San Francisco to Los Angeles a few years ago, sitting next to the window, reading a Christian book, and the man next to me, obviously from the Eastern Hemisphere, asked, are you a religious man? Well, yes, I said, I am too, he responded. We began talking about religion. In the middle of the conversation, I asked, can you give me a one-liner that captures the essence of your faith? Well, yes, he said. We are all part of the problem, and we are all part of the solution. He talked about his one-liner, a statement I felt was very helpful. And after a while, I said, would you like a one-liner that captures the essence of the Christian faith? Sure, he responded. And this was... Robert's response, he says, we are all part of the problem, but there is only one man who is the solution, and his name is Jesus. Folks, this is, this is the heart of Christmas. This is the center, really, of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, Jesus coming as the only solution to the problem of sin. There is no other solution. There is no other way. There is no other person. There is no other gospel. This is, this is the heart of Christmas. This is why we celebrate Advent every single year because we are reminded that there is only one solution and that person, that solution is the, the person of Jesus Christ. He came in the form of a baby to rescue us and to deal with the problem of sin. We see this in John 1:14. John makes it clear, the word became flesh and he dwelled or he tabernacled or lived among us. I'm thankful that God came in human form and lived among us. He lived a perfect sinless life. He died for us and he was raised to life for us. Matthew in Matthew 1:21, we looked at this. He said his name shall be called what? Jesus. Why? For he shall save 
people from their sins. And then we see today's text in John 14, again, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Let me take just about three minutes to really give you the context of this statement. I didn't just pull this out of John 14, 6. I want you to see the whole context of what's unfolding. We see, first of all, that when Jesus makes this statement in John 14, he is with his disciples. He's, he's teaching them, and it's just a few days before his crucifixion. So he is really at the end of his life here on earth or toward the end of his life. And just a few days before his crucifixion, what Jesus is doing is he now is trying to do his best to prepare this crew that would be responsible for spreading the gospel. And Jesus had quite the daunting task in front of him. I mean, he had Peter who didn't know when to shut his mouth. He had James and John who were always arguing and bickering back and forth. I want to be the greatest. I want the position of honor. I want power. I want authority. And then he had uh, tax collectors as a part of his team. So Jesus, in these final moments, just before his crucifixion, he is trying to finally and, and really bring a close to his preparation of this crew because they would be responsible after his death, his resurrection, and more importantly, after his ascension, when the Holy Spirit would come upon the church, this crew of disciples and followers of Jesus Christ, they would be responsible for what? For spreading the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so really in John 14, really John 14 through 16, what Jesus is doing is he was discussing his soon departure and his imminent return. He was talking about that the day was coming when, when he would return to the Father, but he was also referring to a day when he would come again. There would be a second advent, a second return of Christ. And so as Jesus is talking to his disciples, really in the upper room and explaining things regarding his, his soon departure and his imminent return, Jesus is talking to this crew of motley disciples, and as he's talking with them, he is assuming that they knew where he was going and how they would and how he would get there. Yet there was one of the disciples, Thomas, who is often referred to as the doubter. Thomas quickly declared after Jesus made this statement, Thomas quickly declared that since they didn't know where he was going, how could they know how to get there? I think most of us are pretty smart to realize that if we don't know the address of our destination, we, we aren't going to know the route to get there because we don't know which way to go. Are we to go north, east, south, west? Which way are we to go? If we don't have a destination, if we don't know the where, we're not going to know the how to get there, which resulted then in Jesus's statement. He said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus, as the way, truth, and life, it has serious implications for the human race. And so I want to take just a few moments this morning, and I'll be brief, to examine each of these names, way, truth, and life associated with Jesus. And I want to begin by talking about Jesus is the way to the Father. A few things about this. First of all, the way, I believe, from Scripture, the way is pretty clear. How many of you in this room love options? When you go to our restaurant, how many of you love options? When you are going to a vacation destination, how many of you love options when you travel? 
Some of you, some of you are like, just give me the fastest way possible, the easiest route. I've told you this before. I think most of you know me enough by now to know that when I, when I type in a destination route in my Google Maps or whatever Maps app I have on my phone, I'm always looking for not necessarily the fastest route or the, or the shortest distance. For me, I'm looking for the most scenic route. And usually that's off the interstate. That's usually driving through small little towns and communities and having to stop at every stoplight. And it takes you about two hours longer to get to your destination. But I love, I love having the option. Maybe I'm in the mood to get to my destination quickly because I'm running behind. Or maybe I have all the time in the world and I just want to spend time in my car, spend time in the presence of God. So I decide to choose the scenic route and it takes a few hours longer. Regardless, I think most of us human beings, typically speaking, we like options. We, we like to be able to look at something and say, well, I don't want to do that. But yeah, I'm interested in that or, or, or this sounds good, but I'm not really interested in this today. We love options. But when it comes to eternity, there are not several options on the plates. There's only one option. Jesus said very specifically, I am the way. There is no other way. There's no other option. There's nothing confusing really or unclear about the statement that Jesus made. I am the way. There's no other way to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't mention their good works. He doesn't talk about their, their faithful attendance in church. He doesn't talk about how much money they put in the offering bag. He doesn't talk about how many times they share together in communion or, or, or how many people here are baptized or not baptized. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't refer to any of those things. When it talks about spending eternity in the presence of God, Jesus makes it incredibly clear there is only one way, and it, it is through him, through Jesus Christ, to come into the Father's presence. All roads don't lead to heaven. John highlights, this is very important for us to understand. When you read throughout the Gospel of John, John does an incredible job of highlighting the relationship between the Father and the Son. Listen to these few statements. First of all, we see in John that Jesus comes from the Father, and we know that he is going to return to the Father. Look at John chapter 16, verse 28. Listen to what he says. Yes, I come from the Father into the world, and now I will leave the world and return to the Father. So we know that Jesus, the Son, he comes from the Father, but he's going to return to the Father. Secondly, we see that Jesus, he reveals the Father to the world. John makes this incredibly clear in John 14, verse 9. He says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? He says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father so why are you asking me to show him to you? So Jesus is just simply saying to Philip and to the disciples present, those that he's training and equipping to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, he's saying to them that if you've seen me, the son, you've seen the father. So, so Jesus comes into the world from the father. He's gonna return to the father. But we also know that what Jesus does when he's here, when he's present, uh, word, when the word of God became flesh and dwelled among us, one of the responsibilities was to reveal the father to the world. Jesus's role then is very simple. When he's here on earth, his role is to lead people to the Father, to lead people into the presence of the Father. That's why, that's why Jesus says to his disciples who are going to be responsible for spreading this good news and taking it to the ends of the earth, that's why he says, I am the way. 
I am the truth and I, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only option. There is no other way. There is no other avenue to come to the Father. Now, I know we all like options. We, we like to pick and choose. We like to look at several things in front of us and say, I want this thing, but I don't want this thing. But when it comes to eternity, there aren't options in front of us. There's one. There's one option, and the option is Jesus Christ. And if we disregard that option altogether, folks, then the reality is we're going to spend eternity apart from the presence of God. And anybody that fails to say yes to Jesus will spend eternity apart from the presence of God. And here's what I want you to understand. I'm grateful. I am grateful that it's not contingent on me because me, human, imperfect, I fall short. If, if eternity and God's presence depended on my goodness or depended on how good of a person I am or how faithful I am to follow Christ, then the reality is, as a human being, an imperfect human being, I fall short. So I'm grateful that it's not contingent upon me to get into the presence of God because the reality is I won't get there. But I'm grateful that it's contingent upon Jesus Christ, the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The way is clear. The way is clear. I am the way, Jesus said. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way is also narrow. Now, I may not get a lot of shouts and amens on this one, but I want you to see this. The way is narrow. Listen to what Matthew says, or Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. This is part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gates. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is a very narrow, is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Wow, what an encouraging word this morning, right? The, the way to Christ, the way to the Father, it is narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. But when you say yes to Jesus, this is what you are signing up for. Now, I want you to see this, the imagery of two paths, a narrow gate and a broad and a wide gate. Um, this imagery was not uncommon for Jews, Greeks, and or Romans. We see it all throughout Scripture. Let me take you all the way back to the Old Testament in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 15. Look at this, this imagery of two different paths or two different ways. Listen to these words. Now listen, today I am giving you a choice between what? Between life and death between prosperity and disaster. So this imagery of two different ways, either the, the narrow gates or the broad gates, those are options that are in front, but only one will lead into the presence of God. This teaching, as I mentioned, it falls within the context of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount can be found in Matthew chapter five through seven. You have the Beatitudes, um, that are found within the Sermon on the Mount. But that sermon that Jesus gave in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, it was focused on having a righteousness that exceeded the righteousness of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the teachers of the law. Remember, you, you hear Jesus refer often to the Pharisees, talked about how they would honor God with their lips, but their hearts were so incredibly far from God. And so what Jesus is, is really trying to teach those who are listening in onto the sermon is, I don't want you just to have lip service that says you follow God with your mouth, but I want your hearts 
to be reconciled to him. I want your heart to be in right relationship with God. And if you can do that, then your righteousness will exceed that of the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. That's why he will say things like you've heard that it was said, if you, if you uh, commit murder, um, then, then you've obviously sinned. But he'll go a little bit further. He says, but I say to you, if you have hatred in your heart for another or brother or sister, then you've committed murder in your heart. It's all about the hearts. Pharisees were all about the lip. Lips, lip service unto God. But Jesus is calling for them to have a relationship that is from the hearts. He says in Matthew 5, verse 20, it says, I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I want you to see this. Most first century Jews, they believed that they would be saved by virtue of being a descendant of Abraham. They thought they were in. They thought they were good. If, we are, if I'm a descendant of my father Abraham who had many sons and many sons had father Abraham, I won't get into that song, but, but we know it. Um, we'll be here all day if we do. Um, but, but the reality is many Jews, they were under the impression that if I'm a descendant of Abraham, the one that God chose, the, the chosen one, if I'm a son of him, then by nature I must be in. And we read these words in Matthew chapter three, verse nine. Listen to what is said. Don't just say to each other, we're safe, for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. The reality is our, our descendant, um, or being a descendant of Abraham doesn't guarantee, or just, just being born into a Christian family doesn't guarantee that I myself will spend eternity into God's presence. I have to make a decision to follow Christ and to say yes to him, the only way. And, and I know in our culture today, there's a lot of, a lot of folks that, that think we can just kind of, you know, I, I'm going to hold on to the faith of my, my parents or the faith of my grandparents, and certainly there's value into that, but at some point, at some point, as individuals, we have to decide, am I going to follow Christ? We sang it earlier in song, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. And so we have to make a decision, am I going to follow him or am I going to follow a different pathway or a different road? This teaching and understanding that by mere nature of being a descendant of Abraham was incredibly deceptive. Many, many, like the Pharisees, would follow faithfully uh, the law, yet many failed to embrace the claims of Christ himself. This narrow way will lead to persecution and suffering in the presence. It may not always look enticing. He says, few will find it. But hear this, the narrow way, the narrow gates will lead to eternal life. That's what's important. That's what is key. How many are still glad that you're here this morning? Okay, good. The way is open. The way is open. Listen to Romans 10, verse 13. What does Paul say? For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Folks, the invitation, the invitation to come into the presence of God, it is a universal invitation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Not just those who are descendants of Abraham, not just those who were born into a, a Christian home, not just those who have their life together. This invitation, it is a universal invitation. It is given to everyone. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here's what we need to see. Not only is it a universal invitation, it is an exclusive way. How do we come into the presence of the Father? Only through Jesus Christ. The invitation is given for all. 
All of human race has received this invitation. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are we saved? We're saved through Jesus Christ, not saved through our works, not saved through our attendance, not saved through our giving. Those should be byproducts of our relationship with Jesus Christ and our growth in him. But the reality is we are only saved through Jesus Christ. The universality of salvation and the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, listen to this, that should urge us to declare faithfully this most important message for all to hear and all to respond to. Folks, if we truly believe, let me just talk to you really simply as your pastor this morning, if we truly believe deep down in our heart that Jesus Christ is the only way to spend eternity in God's presence, then we know what we should be about. We should be about declaring the most important message, the most important news that we've ever received, and that is that Jesus Christ has come and we will spend eternity in his presence only through him. If we truly believe that, if we believe that he is the only way, then that's, that's the message we need to be declaring. We need to be about that business because it's not just showing up in church that guarantees our presence in, in, in eternity with God. It's when we say yes to following him. Christmas um, is the season of choice. If you want to buy a food processor, Amazon offers you 2,000 types. Or how about a drill? I've never bought a drill for myself before, but how about a drill? There are more than 40,000 options. No, I'm not making those numbers up. Choices can be glorious and confusing and empowering and overwhelming all at the same time. And in the West today, it looks as though it is the same with God. There is a huge array of deities to choose from, including the, quote, no to all option. Walk through an airport or a shopping mall anywhere and you will be walking past countless people who believe in no God. Plenty of people who believe there are many gods and another great multitude who believe in one God, but who have very different thoughts on what that one God is like and what he thinks. For some, God is kind of a distant grandfather guy looking down benevolently and wanting us to be happy. To others, God is a harsh taskmaster, counting up your good and bad actions and weighing up whether he's going to have mercy on you in the end. To others, God is an impersonal force that wound the universe up and is now off doing other stuff while we get on with it down here. To others, God is the universe. There are so many options to choose from. It's empowering and overwhelming at the same time. How do you know? How can you choose? And what does it matter? But Isaiah's claim was that the baby who would be born at the first Christmas would be what? Mighty God. For all that Israel needed, for all that they lacked, for all that they could never be in themselves, they had God, the great I am, the mighty God, a purifying, ever-present, shepherding, providing, healing and defending God. Folks, we have Jesus Christ. He is the way, and there is no other way. The way is clear. The way is narrow. But I'm grateful the way is open. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We need to be about making certain that people hear and know that message. Number two, Jesus, and I'll give these last to you, to you quickly. Jesus is the truth. Truth I don't think I have to give you too many examples, but truth is under attack today. You turn on the news, you step into the world in general, you will see that truth is under attack. One person wrote these words. He said, our church rented a theater to watch the passion of the Christ on opening weekend. 
He said, afterward, we gathered for dinner, discussion, and prayer, returned home in a somber mood, deeply reflecting upon the sacrifice of Christ. When I opened my mail that night, the first letter was from a local church inviting me to visit their, quote, special community. They listed the ways they were unique. First of all, they had on there no religious dogma. We encourage the freedom of individual thought and belief, a humanist view of life. Our faith is based on celebrating the inherent worth and dignity of every person. Secondly, warm, accessible services. Our Sunday services typically include a mix of readings, music, moments of meditation or contemplation, and a sermon. Number three, our children's religious education program. We teach our kids to be accepting of differing beliefs and the importance of each person seeking his or her her own truth. They study the world's major religions and draw on the core values of each faith tradition. And number four, so if you're looking for a congregation that cherishes freedom of belief and opinions with a warm sense of community and fellowship, please visit us. And then he said, I had watched the horrific suffering of Jesus and heard him say, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And hours later, I open an invitation to visit a group where truth doesn't even matter. He said the contrast was overwhelming. Truth is under attack. Folks, much of the world no longer even claims to an absolute truth. Truth is often, unfortunately, in our culture today defined by one's circumstances or one's emotions or one's experiences, which are always up and down instead instead of something that doesn't move, something that is firm, something that never changes. And, And so in our world today, truth is pictured as something that is always changing. You know, what's true for you, you know, may not be true for me, somebody may say, and whatever you want to be true, that's fine. You do you and do whatever you want to do. And this leaves the development of a moral code up to the individual rather than a moral, holy, perfect God. Folks, this is dangerous. This is a dangerous place to be in, and it leads to incredible chaos. I'm not going to take you here, but if you read the book of Judges, you will see what happens when people decide to define truth based on their own terms or their own circumstances or their own desires. Because what happens, you have this whole group of people that grew up and it says at the end of Jesus that they did what was right in their own eyes. They ignored absolute truth. They ignored the fact that there was a holy, perfect God who determines what is true based on his character. There is an absolute truth. John 17, verse 17, Jesus says, make them holy by your truth. And then he says, teach them your word, which is truth. We we have a revelation of truth here in front of us. We have access to what is true. God has given us a revelation of himself. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. And then in John 17, he says, sanctify them or make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. And so we don't have to go looking to somebody's opinion or something else. We, we have in front of us, we've been given access to what is truth. And then Psalm 119, the psalmist says, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commands are true. This truth can be known. The law was given to reveal God's truth. Jesus came and he fulfilled the law. Jesus doesn't just convey truth, but listen, He is truth. Jesus said, I am the way and what? The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
Therefore, Jesus, if truth can be known and Jesus is truth, that implies that Jesus or God himself can be known. And I'm not talking about just having a head knowledge of who God is. I'm talking about having an experience, a relationship with Jesus Christ, the word of God, the son of God, uh, the perfect one. We can have a relationship with him that's not just knowing what scripture says, but having intimacy and fellowship and communion with him. And and I don't think we get that. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter one and two, uh, even in chapter three, before sin entered the equation, we see what that communion and fellowship looked like. Adam and Eve had intimacy with God. Sin came in and broke that relationship, that fellowship and that communion. But folks, we've been given, we've been given the word of God. His word is truth. We can experience and know him. John 14, six through seven. Look at the whole passage here. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. If you had really known me, Jesus says, you would know who my father is. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Jesus said, Jesus can be known. The truth, we also know the truth. Jesus himself will set you free. In John chapter eight, Jesus said to the people who believed in him, you are truly my disciples if you remain faithful to my teachings and you will know the truth. And the truth, who is the truth? Jesus. And the truth, Jesus will set you free. We talked about this a little bit last week. He sets us free from the bondage of sin. Jesus came to rescue us, to set us free from the bondage of sin so we could spend eternity in his presence. But secondly, he set us free to faithfully serve Jesus. Folks, Jesus didn't come just to set us free from sin so you and I could live our lives however we wanted to live our lives to not be accountable to anybody else. No, he came to set us free from sin, from the bondage of sin, so you and I could freely live in relationship with Jesus Christ. So we could say, he is my Lord, he is my master, and I submit to his lordship. And so he came to set us free. The truth has come to set us free, not just free from the bondage of sin, but free to serve him faithfully. Jesus is the way. The way is clear. The way is narrow. The way is open. Jesus is the truth. There is absolute truth despite what our culture says, despite what somebody else tells you. If they say, well, this is my truth and whatever you want truth to be for you is fine. Say, no, I have an absolute truth. I have the word of God. His word is true and I'm going to, I'm going to adhere to what he says and his truth, Jesus, will set us free. And finally, Jesus is the life. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Life is more than our possessions. Life is more than just temporal happiness or all of our accomplishments brought together. Yet this seems to be the world's understanding of life. If you were to take a poll and to ask a friend or ask a neighbor and say, what what does life mean to you? Most often we will say things like, you know, having these possessions or having happiness or or accomplishing these things or having this, this family dynamic or whatever it may be. That's the world's understanding of life. But Jesus has a different picture. Let me uh, tell this story to you. This question was posed. What is the goal of life? To accumulate the most money, this is what one can learn from the reading of the obituary of Reuben Klammer, the creator of the board game, The Game of Life. Anybody played The Game of Life in here, the board game? I've played it before. It's been a while. Uh, But he died on September 14, 2021 at the age of 99. Listen to this. When The Game of Life was introduced in 1960, 
The purpose was to earn the most wealth. The way you got there was simple enough. By going to college, getting a job, buying insurance, saving for retirement, that was indicative of what sold in that era, a former VP said. Over time, designers realized that the game didn't reflect consumers' changing views of life goals, so they gave it a big update in 2007, allowing players to score points for virtuous deeds like saving an endangered species or opening a health food chain and recycling. And instead of starting the game at point A and finishing at point Z, there is no fixed path. You decide how you want to spend your time. One question that popped up is, if the popular view of what matters in life changed so much in less than 50 years, who's to say it won't shift again in the next 50? How will you win life in 2057? But as Jill Lepore wrote in The New Yorker, the redesigned teams always had a hard time addressing the fundamental criticism of the game, that the only way to reward a player for virtuous acts was with money. Save an endangered species, collect $200,000. Solution to pollution, $250,000. Open a health food chain, you get $100,000. And so the company's 2007 overhaul, the game of life, twist and turns, was almost existential. I can't even say it. You know what I'm trying to say. Instead of putting players on a fixed path, it provided multiple ways to start out in life, but nowhere to finish. This is actually the game selling point. It has no goal. Miss Lepore wrote, life is aimless. That's the world's understanding of life. No goal, no purpose. It is aimless. Yet Jesus makes his purpose for coming in human flesh quite clear. Jesus himself said, I came to do what? To give you life and life more abundantly, John 10, I came that they may have life and they may have life abundantly. How many are thankful for the abundant life that Jesus offers? This abundant life, this life that has purpose, this life that has meaning, this life that has value, this life that Jesus and Jesus alone gives, folks, that life is ours. It's ours when we say yes to Jesus. If we enter through the narrow gates, Jesus says few will find it, but if we enter in through the narrow gates, you will experience this life and life more abundantly. This abundant life, it speaks of eternity in God's presence. In this abundant life, folks, listen, this abundant life is worth our giving our lives for. I want to end with this scripture. Mark chapter 8, verses 34 through 36, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples. Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Jesus came, came for a purpose. He came to offer you, he came to offer me, he came to offer an entire human race life 
and life more abundantly. And for Jesus, life is not defined by what we have. Life is not defined by the relationships that we are in. Life is not defined by how much wealth we can attain. Life is not a defined by how much good we do. Life is defined by the fact that we serve Jesus Christ who himself said, I am the way, I am the truth. And Jesus said, I am the life. Receive me. No one will come to the Father. No one will experience life more abundantly apart from me. Worship team, if you want to come this morning, I want you to hear this last, this last story. And just listen in for the next, give me about a few more minutes here. For about $5, you can buy a four-inch plastic bobblehead Jesus that bounces on a metal spring and adheres firmly to the dashboard of your car. One advertisement for this product says you can, quote, stick him where you need forgiveness and he will guide you through the valley of gridlock. The dashboard Jesus has become a cultural phenomenon. In the song, Plastic Jesus, Billy Idol sings, quote, with my plastic Jesus goodbye and I'll go far with my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Paul Newman sang it in the movie, Cool Hand Luke. And the words begin, well, I don't care if it rains or freezes long as I have my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. To lots of people, Jesus, church, and Christianity are cultural trappings, but not life-changing realities. Author Josh McDowell warns that many people today see Jesus, quote, like a plastic statue on a car dashboard, smiling, robed, a halo suspended above his head, but that superstitious or sentimental view of Jesus is a myth. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth was no plastic saint. He's a real world kind of savior. It's not important whether you have Jesus on your car's dashboard, but it's vital to know he's living in your hearts. He isn't plastic, he's powerful. He's not small, he's infinite. He's not a good luck token, he's the risen Lord of time and eternity. He is Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, 